I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Mark chapter 6, our scripture passage this morning, verses 45 through 56. Mark chapter 6, and reading from the English Standard Version translation. Now, if you'll remember, this is uh, continuing uh, the story that had just ended with the feeding of the 5,000. And so we read beginning of verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And when, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word this morning, enable us to be taught ultimately by your Holy Spirit. We would pray, Father, that as we sit under the teaching of the word, we would recognize that what you give to those who are preachers and teachers is a measure of your grace to open up the scriptures. But ultimately, Father, it is not the authority of the man who preaches, but it is the authority of your own Holy Spirit that must bring about the power of your word to change our lives as we faithfully hear, as we would faithfully respond and obey. Our Father, this is what we pray for, that our preaching of the word and our hearing of the word would be worshipful, and that we would give you honor and glory by listening, by hearing, and by pursuing a life that is faithful to the word that is brought to us. And so, Lord, we would pray, uh, keep our hearts focused on what is true, what comes by the authority of your Holy Spirit, for the sake of Jesus, in his name, amen. Now, this morning, we're only going to be looking uh, essentially at verses 45 through 53, and we would remind ourselves that this particular episode uh, immediately follows the time which Jesus has fed the 5,000. Think back to that day of teaching. It was a long day for Jesus as he spiritually fed the people and then as he physically fed the people, 
but it was a day that was not nearly as intensively busy for the disciples because they'd actually crossed, crossed the Sea of Galilee in order to sort of escape the crowds. So that the disciples who had just been on their short-term mission where they had been uh, preaching the word of the kingdom and healing people and casting out demons, where they might get some needed rest that Jesus wanted them to have. So they arrived at the shore. The crowds are already there. It's Jesus who goes to minister to them. And the disciples don't really come to Jesus until the time at which Jesus is, is uh, finishing up his teaching. It's getting dark. And that's when they say to him, send the crowds away because it's getting dark. And they need something to eat. That's when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and teaches the disciples that great lesson of faith that, that whenever they are with Christ, all necessary resources are there. That crises, afflictions, situations, hardships can never outstrip the resources of our Redeemer and Savior. So now we come to this story. And the basic setting of this episode is Jesus uh, dismisses the crowds. He has his disciples uh, dismissed by leaving in the boat. He goes up on the mountain in order to pray. So evening is there. The disciples are out on the sea. And Jesus, from the mountaintop, sees that they're experiencing a very severe situation because the wind is against them. Now, in what happens, uh, we're going to be able to see it's very actions of Jesus and the responses of the disciples. Significant lessons, significant truths about what it means for our lives as Christians, especially in terms of the testing of our faith. Now, the, the lessons in this particular passage um, are expressed very, very well by one of the great hymns of the faith, How Firm a Foundation. Uh, this hymn goes back to something like, uh, 1787. So the church has sung it for several hundred years. But I want to read stanzas 1, 2, and 6 and say to you, this is the message that I think that this passage conveys to us. So, the writer has written, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid up for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you, he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with you, O be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I will strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. And then stanza six. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Now, these are the lessons that are actually in this story. Where faith is tested, the disciples find or should know that Jesus is their refuge. And Mark presents this story in three phases. First, the time during which Jesus is praying, and then the time in which Jesus is actually coming to his disciples in the midst of their calamity and crisis. And finally, the time in which Jesus reveals himself more fully to his disciples. So I want to begin with this, this matter of Jesus praying, the praying of Jesus. 
and make several observations. The first observation would be this. Jesus makes room for the priority and practice of prayer. I want you to appreciate that. Jesus makes room for the priority and practice of prayer. He does this by making his disciples leave by boat. In fact, the Greek is even stronger. Uh, We could say he compels his disciples to get into the boat to leave him. The significant point here is that Jesus wanted to be alone. He needed to be alone. He insisted upon being alone. He did this so that he could devote his own time, that particular time at the end of a busy ministry day, he could devote that time to deeper fellowship with God. Deeper fellowship than he could ever have experienced when his disciples were there with him. We see in this that Jesus knew, Jesus understood, Jesus was committed to the priority of having that time, that fellowship, that alone time with God. Now, I think the disciples could see why. Um, They had, for the most part, been spectators that day. They had seen all that Jesus had done, climaxed with this tremendous miracle of multiplying the loaves and the fish. He had given out so much since he had already told his disciples that he needed to come away for rest after their ministry endeavors. It would have been natural for them to understand, well, even Jesus needs this time alone, time with the Father, uh, in the aftermath of this great ministry that he'd done that day. So, What Jesus had instructed with respect to his own disciples, he is now giving by example in his own life as well. And this was not a new thing. If you go back to chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, uh, the very first Sabbath day that is presented to us, at the end of that Sabbath day, there in Capernaum, while he's staying at the home of of, of St. Peter, uh, you have all of the village bringing those who are sick and demon-possessed to the house, And Jesus labors far into the night. But the interesting thing is, is that what you read next is, early in the next morning, he arose and went to a desolate place to pray. And that's where the disciples found him. That it was a pattern in Jesus' life after giving, or after being involved deeply in ministry, to recognize the need for spiritual retreat, spiritual refreshment, spiritual revitalization with God. There was the utmost need for Jesus to pray, to be in God's presence. Now, it's also likely that as Jesus prayed for spiritual renewal in his own life, one of the reasons why he needed to be by himself was he was most likely praying for the disciples as well. Now, I want to encourage you, uh, husbands and wives, Parents, it is sometimes incredibly difficult to get alone for prayer. But how could you pray the deepest and honest concerns you have for your children in front of your children? And how could you pray the deepest and honest concerns that you have for your spouse in front of your spouse? How could you pray for some of the deepest and and honest concerns even in your own heart and life? except you did it 
in the privacy of being with God and God alone. So we see Jesus here setting an example for his disciples, always setting this example for his disciples that every every one of us needs this kind of time alone with God. Now at the same time I want us to recognize another observation here is that although Jesus makes this his priority, he doesn't make his disciples any less of a priority than what they had always been. There's no conflict here between Jesus putting God as his first priority and making that time with God that priority and and then also his responsibilities, his love, his care, concern for his disciples. In other words, we might look at it this way, this retreat for prayer. Jesus separated himself from his disciples did not separate Jesus from their concerns and the concerns about their life. We see this indicated in verse 48. Jesus looks out upon the lake from the height of the mountain and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. That is to say, Jesus is actually looking toward them and not just looking toward them, but looking out for them even as they're out on the lake several miles away. He recognizes what they're up against. And and this illustrates for us that real prayer in our lives as Christians does not ever remove us from the real concerns of life and the real concerns of people around us, whether it's a husband for a wife, whether it's a mother for her children, whether it's grandparents praying for their grandkids. Prayer never takes us away from the real concerns of life. The priority of prayer is never a priority that interferes with our deepest loves and deepest concerns of the people who are within our lives or the ministries we're involved in. In fact, what Jesus shows us here is that actually time with the Father must truly be for all other love and concern and ministry and prayer for others. Not sufficient for us as Christians to just simply say, well, we have prayer together at breakfast and lunch and dinner. We always pray together. It's never sufficient to say, well, I pray with my children before I put them to bed. Each believer needs that time alone with God. If Jesus needed that time alone with God, each one of us needs that time alone with God. Uh, The second phase of the story is about Jesus coming to the disciples. And it begins this way, Jesus responding to the needs of his disciples. The last part of verse 48, Mark mentions that it is the fourth watch when Jesus particularly makes the observation about what's going on. Now, the fourth watch of the night was approximately the time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And so the beginning of the fourth watch would be around 3 a.m. in the morning. And that means that if you talk about evening time as when the disciples left on the boat, which was sometime around sundown, sometime at this time of the year, the spring of the year, about 6 p.m. So we're talking about how many hours? 6 to midnight, midnight to 3 Nine hours they have been on the Sea of Galilee and they have not been able to travel the three to four miles across to Bethsaida 
that was their intended destination. In fact, where they are on the sea, according to the Gospel of John, is about halfway across, but further south than their intended destination. Uh, John's Gospel tells us they had rowed about three to four miles against a headwind. They weren't sailing, they were rowing, which means that these disciples had been at this for something close to nine hours. And that's why Mark describes it as making headway painfully. We can assume that at this point that they are practically at the verge of exhaustion because of what they're doing. We also need to remember, you've got 12 disciples here. Only four of them were professional fishermen. If any of you have ever gone yachting, been out on a boat, a sailboat or anything like that, and if you are a total novice, if this is not something you do, uh, you're always afraid of doing something wrong more than doing something right. And imagine these disciples, of which four are experts and eight are amateurs, and they're experiencing this for nine hours. You can only imagine their sense of calamity, their sense of crisis, even for uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, the professional fishermen. This has got to be quite a difficult situation for them. And so what we can imagine is that in the context of this, Jesus has been praying. We can also imagine that they too have been praying. But I think what's interesting here is that Jesus is coming in light of what he sees. The disciples have been praying for help. But Mark only mentions the prayer of Jesus. That is to say, Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. Mark doesn't mention what was going on in terms of any prayers by the disciples. And I think the significance of that, I don't want to overblow the significance of that, but I think the significance of that is that in the context of the story, Mark wants to make it clear that Jesus knows our needs and Jesus responds to our needs even when we don't pray. I mean, it's very possible that the disciples have reached the point of such fear that their prayers are, well, maybe you've been in that kind of a situation where you were so incredibly afraid that your prayers were almost nonsensical, perhaps incoherent, perhaps difficult to articulate. The point is, is that our lives as Christians and whatever calamity and crises that we experience, we're told to pray. But we ought never to think that it's our prayers that has this great power and efficacy. Always remember, always, that the Son of God himself is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his own Whatever power our prayers have, those powers are derived from the greater authority and power of Jesus Christ interceding for 
us. Clearly, if the disciples have been praying and hours and hours have gone by, they're not putting much stock in their (laughs) prayers, are they? And perhaps you've been in that situation too where you have prayed much and prayed long about things and you have reached the point, what's the point? My prayers don't get me anywhere at all. That is when we must remember it's never the power of your prayer in the first place. It's always Jesus. It is always Jesus who has the power to deliver. And none of the obstacles that could ever come our way can ever obstruct Jesus from his concern to take care of us. Now, what's notable then in this story then is clearly Jesus delays in coming. Mark makes it clear. It's in the third watch that Jesus comes down off the mountain and sets forth to go to his disciples. He has waited long after the beginning of their calamity and their distress. He has waited long into the hours of their exhaustion. Why does Jesus wait? We've asked that question, all of us. Why has God waited when he has seen my need? Why has God waited so that it seems like things have to get so incredibly, truly desperate before God does anything? Matthew Henry, on that particular point, that particular question, makes this brief but powerful comment. Their extremity is his opportunity. Their extreme and dire circumstances is God's greater opportunity to demonstrate his power. In other words, look at it this way. The more helpless the disciples see themselves, the more hopeless they are within themselves, the more they fear, feel their need of God's help, the more they are unable in themselves to rescue themselves, the more they will grasp what it will mean to have Christ rescue them. Or the Apostle Paul would put it this way. When we as believers see ourselves as jars of clay, then it will be shown to us so much more that all the saving power comes from God and not from ourselves. So Jesus waits. But we can also be certain that while Jesus waits, Jesus prays. He delays only to show more of his saving power. We note further that when Jesus does come, he himself comes. That is, he comes in a personal way to rescue and to help his disciples. Now, it didn't have to be that way. We're talking about Jesus who had already demonstrated to the disciples and the miracles which we had done that he had the power to speak to the wind, the power to speak to the sea, and to bring instant calmness about. 
Jesus could have stood on the shore and simply said, peace, be still, and the disciples would have found themselves in the calmest of waters. But that's not how Jesus chose to do this. He also could have sent an angel to help them. He could have said, legions of angels to help them. He could have done it that way as well. But instead, he chooses to come to them in this particular way, a personal way, as well as a providential way. And we notice that that kind of coming was supernatural and miraculous. Jesus walks on water. Not only were they going to be rescued from their troubles, but Jesus was going to do it in a most extraordinary way. Now, that reminds us then, or should remind us, of what's the purpose, what's the role, what is the significance of the miracles which Jesus was doing Here we have another instance of Jesus exercising his sovereign power over creation. The power to speak to nature and the supernatural, or in, in all of these ways, just Jesus' power to command whatever and for everything to obey him. And here he commands the waters to support his weight, to walk as though it is on dry land. Now, I have to say that any number of times I have tried to picture this, what would it have looked like for Jesus to actually walk on the water, especially with the undulations of the water, the fact that the water is moving. And you realize this is really a very exceptionally incredible miracle and an incredibly visual miracle. And then you realize, oh, it's night. But Edersheim points out the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, that Mark's reference to green grass indicates this is shortly before the time of the Passover and that this is likely a very moonlit night which enabled then Jesus to see his disciples miles out upon the lake and which at some point would have enabled them to see him coming as he's walking across approximately three miles of ocean to reach them. The meaning of this miracle is what Jesus himself had said in the Gospel of John to those who were questioning him. The meaning of the miracle is to demonstrate that the Father is in him and that he is in the Father. That all of the saving things he does and all of the miracles he does to show his saving power is so that they might see in Jesus he is the object of saving faith. But further, would it not also make clear to them that none of the difficulties of their situation, none of the the afflictions of their circumstances could ever obstruct the mercy of Christ, that could never keep the power of Christ from coming to their aid? It is, as Matthew Henry said, their extremities, his opportunity. I'd say as Christians, we we need to reflect upon stories like this. We need to think about stories like this. And we need to put ourselves into the context of such stories so that we will remember again and again and again that our God, his Son, 
the Holy Spirit, the triune God, can move heaven and earth to rescue us in our time of need, if that is what it takes. We need to remember such stories as this so that when we are at our point of exhaustion, we can realize Jesus has been looking down upon us from the right hand of the Father, seeing our circumstances, understanding what is going on, and interceding for us so that we would take hope. Now that leads us to the third phase of what is going on here in this story, the revealing of Jesus. And in this regard, it's very puzzling what we read about Jesus' intentions. It's curious that Jesus intended to pass by. That's what Mark reports at the end of verse 45. He says, he meant to pass by. Now what does that mean? Well, it, it, the obvious meaning is Jesus was coming to them, but he didn't intend to get in the boat. He intended to come to them. He intended to come toward them, but he intended to pass by them. But why? Why would that be the case? If Jesus was coming to help the disciples, if he was coming to rescue them, why doesn't he set his path straight toward them so that he's going to climb into the boat with them? Why is he going to pass by? Well, you know, often it's the puzzling things in Scripture that invite us to think perhaps more deeply about what's going on. And, and you can read a dozen commentators who note this, and they'll all say it's a very puzzling thing. And here's what most of them come to the conclusion about what's going on here. They said, look, this... this Passing by is not bypassing. That is to say, Jesus' intention to pass by is not to bypass their need. This is not an intention on the part of Jesus to somehow get close to them and not help them. Rather, they say, we, we need to appreciate that everything that Jesus does, especially in the context of doing that which is miraculous, has a very symbolic reference as well. And, and all the commentators would say, point to this. When Moses wanted to see the glory of God, we're talking about Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, when Moses desired to see God's glory, God had said to Moses, you can't see it directly or you'll die. But here's a cleft in a rock. And I'll put you in that cleft in the rock. And my glory will pass by. And they say, Jesus here is manifesting his glory. The glory in the supernatural event of actually walking upon the water, coming to them to rescue them. But in, in, in walking and passing by them, he is doing something that would Later on, not immediately, because we will read that the disciples had little faith in the moment, but later on, upon reflection, they would see the connection. 
Here is Jesus passing by. Here is Jesus doing what, oh, God did this with Moses. And of course, what had Jesus just done 10 hours earlier? He had done the greater than Moses thing. He had fed the 5,000. He had produced bread, an act of sovereign creativity, out of five loaves to feed 5,000 men with 12 basketfuls left over. So I appreciate that the commentators here are all pointing to the great symbolism of what Jesus is doing where Mark is presenting Christ as the Messiah who's also God. The God who delivered the Israelites out of Egypt is the same one who's now appeared as the Messiah to deliver his people again. But you know, there's something else I think that's going on. There's an additional reason. And it's a more practical reason. But it involves the testing of our faith. In passing by, Jesus comes close to the calamity and crisis and afflictions the disciples are experiencing. But in doing so, instead of just coming directly to the boat, stepping into the boat, crisis over. Jesus acts as though he's going to walk by while the crisis is going on. And you ask, well, what is this all about? Well, if we consider this whole episode here to be about faith and the lessons of faith and the disciples learning that they can truly and ultimately and finally trust Jesus, if we remember that on an earlier boat trip, the disciples had seen Jesus actually calm the waters and the raging storm with the word of his command. If they had shortly thereafter seen Jesus cast out a legion of demons to make a broken man whole again just by the power of his word, and then shortly thereafter they had seen Jesus raise a dead child to life, uh, again, by the power of his word. And if they had just experienced the fact that Jesus had given them that kind of authority to preach the kingdom message and to heal and to, and to cast out demons, we have to believe that what Jesus is doing here is once again an object lesson with respect to their faith. And I think it's proper to come to this conclusion. Jesus came close. Jesus came near. Jesus was, Jesus was going to pass by in order to convey to them, I see exactly how dire your circumstances are. I want to see how strong your faith happens to be. It seems to be a principle in the Christian life that God responds to our cries in accordance with the necessities of our faith needing to be tested. Uh, let me try to help us to understand that a little bit. In the larger picture of the Christian life, the Apostle Peter has said to Christians who are grieved by various trials that the testing, the tested genuineness of their faith is going to have its witness 
and praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Or in other words, what is most important to God with respect to our lives as Christians? Faith. And what does God do with all of the crises and afflictions and testings that we go through? It's a testing of our faith. So we can take it as a principle of the Christian life that God responds to our crises in accordance with the necessities of our faith being tested. Let me say that again. Jesus responds to our crises, meaning Jesus comes to us, Jesus answers our prayers in the crises that we are going through in accordance with what our faith needs in order to be tested, to be made stronger. If you and I had our way about it, any time we couldn't find a parking spot at a critical moment to get to the doctor, we would say, Jesus, open up a parking space, and we would want Jesus to open up a parking space right then. You and I would want Jesus to answer prayers like this. I'm on the 405. It's a parking lot. In 45 minutes, I've gone three hours. My plane's going to take off. Please, Lord, part the traffic like the Red Sea. Let me drive in the, in the fast lane. Let me get there in the next 20 minutes or I'm going to miss this plane. We would want God to respond to our crises again and again with an instantaneous answer to our prayers. You know that's the case. You know that the thing that we don't like as Christians is having to wait upon God. It's hard. Especially when the things that we are waiting for are things that have broken our hearts. But but here we have the disciples... Nine hours, they're exhausted, and Jesus comes to basically say, do you need me actually to step into the boat? Or can you actually just see me and believe and trust and know that everything is okay? Do you not remember that when I was asleep in the boat, your lives were protected and safe? Now, what is not humorous, but shocking and a little bit funny, is that what we can see Jesus doing, the disciples miserably miss the mark as we have it recorded. Because when they see Jesus, what is their response? They are terrified. They think they see Jesus. A ghost. What this reveals is that the disciples still, at this point in their lives, have a faith that is very, very immature. They have prayed, doubtless, for Jesus to come. They don't get the answer in the way they thought. The answer terrifies them because Jesus is there in a supernatural way. Jesus is there standing upon the water, walking not directly toward them now, but walking past them, and they are so frightened, they do not recognize him, 
their minds flee to a superstitious kind of, of thing and they think that they've seen a ghost. They have responded in fear where they should have responded in faith. And Mark brings that out so very clearly. And at that point, then Jesus reveals himself. And he says to them, take heart or be courageous. Then he says, it is I, do not be afraid. Now it is significant in terms of what Jesus says and identify himself. The phrase there in the Greek isn't what we would normally think, it is I. The Greek there is actually, I am. So what Jesus says is this, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. And, and every time we read Jesus responding to his people and responding to situations with a statement, I am, the connection is always back to the Old Testament where Moses, when he encounters God in the burning bush, says to God, but when I go to the people of Israel and they ask who has sent you, what name shall I give them? And God responds to Moses this way, tell them that I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When the disciples are terrified, utterly terrified, Jesus comes to them and just before he steps into the boat, he says, take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. And finally, we think about the response of the disciples. They go from being utterly fearful to utterly astounded. And Mark makes the comment that the reason why the disciples are utterly astounded is that they did not yet understand about the loaves of bread. After so many evidences of Jesus' power, the disciples still have hearts that were hardened. Now I find that that is perhaps the greatest miracle of the story. How could your heart be hardened? After all the things that Jesus has done, after all the things that you have participated in, how in the world could your heart still be hardened? That's what I was thinking as I was working on the message. And then it struck me. I have had the Lord Jesus in my life for the last 47 years. I have had Every day, the testimony of the Holy Spirit in my life that I'm a child of the living God. I have had extraordinary providences controlling my life. I have had the living God take me from situations that I just wanted to give up and bring about restoration. I have had... Forty-some years 
of being able to say, my God is an awesome God who has been faithful to me without fail every day of my life. Then why? Then why do I find my own heart hardened to believe that he will continue to do for me as he has done in the past? And it struck me that the real story here challenges me. Why would I not have more faith since Jesus has proven himself to me over and over and over again? Why would it not be in my life this constant confession of faith, the same as that great hymn writer that I quoted before, that I ought to be able to recognize the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. God will not. God will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, he will never, no never, no never forsake. And so I say, brothers and sisters, have faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, by your own great Holy Spirit, work in us over and over again the faith that we need to trust Jesus in everything and for everything and to know that our faithful Savior will be with us and is with us in every crisis, in every time that our faith is being tested, that Jesus is there with us. Enable us then, Father, by your Spirit, to trust and rest and to repose upon Jesus, knowing that we will never be forsaken by him. In his name we pray. Amen.